This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The onslaught began just before dawn with a barrage of... In the early days, it just looked at five, six days and Ukraine will be taken. Plans to evacuate civilians from two besieged Ukrainian cities come to nothing. Because we're a neutral organisation, we cannot sign memorandums of understanding with military organisations. UN is now raising its estimates to at least 442,000 people who have now become refugees. Humanitarian aid is not only about assisting individuals, it's also about collective services. A way of Russian missile strikes on cities across Ukraine has sparked international outrage. As we all know, I think this conflict is not over by the end of the year. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. In today's programme, we've got something a little different for you. Recently, I was invited to a discussion about humanitarian aid for Ukraine, organised by Swiss Solidarity, also known as the Chaine de Bonheur or the Gluckskette. Founded in 1946, this much-loved and well-known organisation raises funds from the Swiss public for humanitarian relief projects worldwide. Now, like their neighbours across Europe... Swiss citizens have shown enormous solidarity with Ukraine and they've donated tens of millions of francs. So what's been happening with all that money? What are the challenges, ethical as well as logistical, to delivering aid in Ukraine, a developed country now in the grip of an intense conflict in which 17 million people need support? Swiss Solidarity invited a number of the aid agencies it funds to discuss all this. And it was such an interesting discussion, we decided to share highlights with you here on Inside Geneva. Our guests were Andrea Schmidt of the Swiss Red Cross. This is not something uh, that is driven by international partners because we have to think about uh, sustainability once we leave the country. Damon Ellsworth of the humanitarian agency Medair. Organisations telling us that they're, they're sending 900 tonnes of food aid a month to the contact line. And what does that even look like? You know, that for sure is not going to the vulnerable people. Susanna Brezinova, country director in Ukraine for the Swiss aid organisation HEX. There is millions and millions of dollars flowing basically to Ukraine and the donors push you to spend it very quickly. And Tasha Rumley of Swiss solidarity itself. We are here for good. We have a lot of money and we can spend it wisely and it would be totally irresponsible to spend it in one year. We began by asking, with the conflict now seven months old, what the key challenges are right now. Andrea Schmidt went first. One of the key challenges we, we faced and we are still facing is really the, the fluid situation of um, people arriving, people departing, and we never know who is coming, how many are coming. Also the situation in the collective centers. Um, I mean, we all know that some schools have been used for hosting IDPs, dormitories. Uh, obviously, the schools are restarting now in September. People have to move out. So I think not only for the people, but all, for all responders, it's very difficult to, to estimate what we can do. 
And then I think one of another uh, main obstacles we are also still facing the availabil availability of staff, of, of, of uh, trained staff we can uh, deploy to Ukraine. Not many of us have been working in, in, in conflict areas, and I think this is something we should really take serious. Damon, from, you, from your experience in Ukraine with, with Medair, what are the, the kind of logistical, ethical, even challenges that you identified? Thank you, Imogen. Yeah, I think we, this is a subject we could talk around for the next few hours. Um, but yeah, I arrived in Ukraine uh, on the 28th of February, uh, sorry, in Poland, and then we were, made the first trip over at the 4th or the 5th of March. And then by the end of March, we had six teams operational in six different cities. Um, and I think the two kind of key challenges I'd pull out of that was in the first week of March, we were seeing 160,000 people come into Poland a day. And now we're seeing almost that number of people going back into places like Sumy and Kharkiv, where we are working. And that needs totally different uh, a response uh, design um, and needs and kind of pivot uh, in that time period. I mean, even when I left in the first week of April, it was um, seeing the Russians uh, returning back to the northern border with Belarus and Kiev being mobilized again and embassies were returning. So, you know, it's been a response with breakneck changes in very short periods of time. So the first uh, kind of challenge, I would say, was just the enormous variety of two-way uh, programming. And the second thing I've got to pull out, and we talked a lot about it before, is, of course, the challenge around neutrality. Uh, educating a relatively uh, junior uh, staff who haven't uh, really been educated to humanitarian principles in a context where really we have to question, can neutrality even exist? The complete confusion between military aid and humanitarian aid. Uh, some donors being free to <laughs> say, actually, we don't care if this is humanitarian aid, if this is going to the military, if this is going to the population, we don't care. Just get it out there, you know, organizations telling us that they're, they're sending 900 tons of food aid a month to the contact line. And what does that even look like? You know, that for sure is not going to the vulnerable people. So who's it going to? Organizations, donors uh, being totally fine with that. Thank you very much. So already we are identifying some, some very difficult challenges in a very big country. And as you said, Damon, with events moving very, very fast. So... Susanna, what about you, your challenges? Do you echo Damon, Andrea? You have a different perspective, perhaps? I might add a little bit more to the operation, actually, along the contact line. Hex essentially came in the beginning of the invasion directly to the front line. Uh, we launched operation all along the southern front line and then basically up north around Kharkiv. Um, and now we started operating also in the east. And for us, the biggest challenge, in the, especially in the beginning, was to navigate this very unique humanitarian context, I have to say, because it was plenty of uh, volunteer initiatives, as we've discussed, who started operating uh, in Ukraine, but they were not really well coordinated. We knew we had to work with them, but we had to find a modus operandi that would sort of still comply with what we need to do while not uh, not uh, entirely disturbing what they're trying to do because they uh, were the first one in the places where we needed to go. So that was the unique nature of the Ukrainian crisis. I've never seen such a response from the volunteers, from the um, civilian population and such a wave of solidarity. Um, Ukraine is essentially... 
uh, developed country, there is a lot of frameworks and a lot of uh, legal regulations that are already in place. And this makes at certain points humanitarian assistance or the flow of humanitarian assistance quite difficult. Example, cash programming. It was actually never completely allowed in Ukraine. In 2014, it was targeting only a very small part. Uh, IDPs, very strict criteria. But now the needs were all over the country. And the government took a lot of time to react to this situation and to transfer to this new mode of humanitarian assistance. Um, and that goes with uh, the staff, essentially. So we've faced quite a lot of issues with recruiting um, qualified staff who understands what humanitarian assistance is. Um, so for us, it also takes quite a lot of time to really build the capacities and to also find the capacities. Let's come to you, Tasha, because you, of course, you collect the money, you allocate it. What are you thinking hearing the challenges that these three have identified? Well, yeah, I think uh, Ukraine is quite a challenging context because it's very different from what we are used to 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 work uh, as a situation as uh, humanitarian aid workers. Um, I have my own personal experience, and maybe in a sense it's a good coincidence, or maybe it's a bad one. I don't know for our partners, but I've spent two years and a half in Donbass in 2014 and 15, and then again in 2018 and 19. And I think that the same challenges still apply. Most of the international staff arrived to Ukraine and they have no prior experience in the area. And they have to operate in a context where the state is very controlling at all level, uh, central uh, and local level as well. It's really a context where uh, concepts such as accountability and participation of uh, affected populations really matter. It is uh, not a nice to have. It is a necessity because humanitarian, uh, like foreign humanitarian organizations are going to be challenged by the local population and also by their own staff. And I will just bring one anecdote, which was uh, quite funny uh, for me, maybe not for everyone. I was managing the office in Mariupol in 2014, and we had the very first training uh, of uh, about uh, livelihood programs in Kiev. And I spent both the national staff and the expatriate staff to the training for three days. And they all came back, and then the trainer called me, and uh, she told me, well, look, we have a little issue here. All of your resident staff had much better results than the the delegates <laughs> and uh, and they knew it so the delegates were very it was really hard for them then to manage their own staff and the Ukrainians were like <laughs> look uh, <laughs> I know even the technical program better than you do so um, I think it is humbling it's a good thing because it also inserts itself into the, the whole uh, thinking about what is humanitarian aid decolonizing aid I mean it's a whole new approach and I think it is an opportunity but it is some, sometimes hard to work uh, under those conditions Humanitarian groups are desperately working around the clock to help people evacuate from war zones in Ukraine. The international the Red Cross's first priority is the provision of fresh drinking water and supporting health facilities and personnel. So a humbling experience for aid agencies. Some have been working in Ukraine before February 24th, but many evacuated when the war began and then had to scale up and go back. There, hundreds, even thousands of Ukrainian volunteers were already trying to help. At the same time, there was an outpouring of solidarity for Ukraine across Europe. Thousands of people around the world take part in demonstrations condemning Russia's President Vladimir Putin and calling for an end to the war. In these dark hours, the European Union and its people stand by Ukraine and its people. Organizations like Swiss Solidarity could raise millions of francs very quickly 
for humanitarian aid. So how is that money being spent? Can it be spent just as quickly as it was raised? And more importantly, can it show results? Andrea Schmidt of the Red Cross had this sobering assessment. Yes, I think we can, but not at the speed that is maybe expected, I, I'm afraid. So um, I think this was one of the key challenges when I arrived with the second team of the Swiss Red Cross. So the first team was mainly um, dealing with, you know, setting up uh, office, uh, meeting our local partner. But I think one of the lessons we learned was that, um, of course, Ukrainian Red Cross at national level has a, a strategy. There is a, also a small strategy at the branch level. Then there is the Swiss Red Cross who has a strategy. So we spent a whole day on really planning together, you know, that, that we can combine our um, programming, our um, strategy, our uh, topics that you want to, to cover, but also the the strategy of our local part and bringing all those plans together and, and, and try to slowly increase the capacities. But really this, this takes time. So we are now in a process of, of scaling up, but this is um, something that is not done from today to tomorrow. But as we all know, I think this conflict is not over in by the end of the year. But I think if we commit to spend 50% of the money in six months, I think this is not realistic. Okay. Susanna and Damon, we were having a chat before this panel began, and you two, I heard you asking each other, so how did you scale up? How did that work? So maybe, you know, you can share that now. We did, we did scale up quite quickly. Um, positives and negatives to that. We scaled up quite quickly. How did we do it? I sent a letter to about eight mayors of different cities, and I asked them to send a representative to the Ukrainian border on the 5th of, I think it was the 4th or the 5th of March. They all attended. And I said, I wanted three things. I wanted a letter of introduction, inviting us to come and work with them. I wanted a, a variety of nominees for them to be our coordinators in the cities. And I asked for them for a critical list of needs. And there, six of them gave us all of those things. I was interviewing candidates by the end of the week. And we had six operational officers two weeks later. And we scaled back actually to four on some positive advice that we need to focus our attention a little bit more on four. <laughs> so yeah, that's how we scaled up. I just want to cycle back as well to this question about cash, if I could just very, very briefly. The multipurpose cash allowance is about 60 Swiss francs per month per person. There's been so much debate on that in the clusters, and it doesn't address a 40% drop in the value of the hryvne, but it means that we can serve more people, positives, negatives. <laughs> it is quite easy to register people. About a third of the people that we're registering are duplicates, which means they're registered with multiple different entities to give that money. And I would just quickly say, yeah, it's great. It gives people a lot of dignity uh, in the cities. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of re registration, but there's huge needs in the rural areas. You know, everywhere. The rural areas do not seem to be uh, featuring so much. So there is an enormous pull factor headed into winter that the urban areas is the place to go and receive aid. A lot of the housing that is available is actually in the rural areas as well. Is Does cash support those guys in the rural areas? Certainly not. The banking facilities are, are not entirely there. Uh, 60 Swiss francs is not enough to repair a window or to insulate a house. So there's a, a need for both programming. Susanna, you... We're singled out for getting something flexible, maybe a bit of uh, lateral thinking about how to get up and running quite quickly. So tell us a bit about that. 
Um, so Hex is still in the process of scaling up, I have to say. But what we did essentially, we looked at the situation in Ukraine in the beginning of the war and saw everybody fleeing to Lviv or across the border. This is not a judgmental point because nobody has seen such a large-scale invasion. And really in the early days, it just looked at five, six days and Ukraine will be taken. So that was quite a natural reaction. But once this first week was gone, we basically decided to go straight to the front line because we saw that there were massive needs and there was essentially no uh, no assistance. Everybody was still deciding where to go, how to get back in, how to scale up. So we arrived to Odessa, um, dead scoping mission to Mykolaiv, another scoping mission to Kharkiv, which was one of the most affected areas, Mykolaiv, Kharkiv, Odessa. We started uh, with a very small, not small, small, but uh, compared to what we have now, basically a smaller funding. And then all of a sudden, when we got a bit of visibility, the funds started coming in and we started scaling up the response, different sectors, different needs. uh, But we still wanted to really keep this uh, strategy of a first responder around the um, along the contact line, because for us, that's fairly crucial. There was a point where we had to temporarily say stop to more funding to essentially consolidate, still remain operational, but consolidate and understand where we're going to go and how we want to do this. Because you're right, there is millions and millions of dollars flowing basically to Ukraine and the donors push you to spend it very quickly. And often it's very unrealistic. This was initially the big push. Oh yeah, let's go. Let's apply for the funding. Let's get more funds. But we figure out later how we spend them. So I'm actually quite curious myself to see how they're going to do all of this because it's a massive amount. So what I think is important is some sort of a pushback also from our side as NGOs to say that we need to somewhat face the funding because I know that now it attracts media attention and the Ukraine crisis is everywhere. But the crisis is going to be there next year, the year after, and we're going to deal with the impacts of everything that's happening in the next few decades. So there needs to be a little bit of a pushback also from our side, say, hey, not this year, leave it for next year. Tasha, I see you nodding there. Is this a concern of yours at the Chêne de Bonheur that, you know, there's a lot of money available, but that there's maybe a danger of it getting spent too quickly, too broadly? No, look, we spent it, but actually... What did we achieve? I'm delighted to, to listen to Susanna and also to what Andrea said before. Uh, speed is not everything. Fast is not necessarily good. And we've been very aware of that since the very beginning. And um, we feel as a donor organization and as an organization that is really raising the money from the Swiss public, we feel sometimes this pressure from the media. And of course, we do have questions coming from the media, but also from, from simple people who have been donating. They call to our office. They want to know what happened and suddenly there is a a little scandal oh my goodness you've spent only five million how is this possible we are not alone in ukraine our partners are not alone this is a common effort and it's not a race so we have really taken this approach from the very beginning to say okay we are here for good we have a lot of money and we can spend it wisely and it would be totally irresponsible to spend it in one year many of our programs you know they are not necessarily life-saving many of our programs are not 
exactly on the front line, they are behind, looking at IDPs, they can build something that is a bit more elaborated. And what we want to achieve is impact. And I think, of course, we have a, our, our duty is also to explain this to the public because these are legitimate questions and maybe the answers are, are not, you know, instinctive. Uh, but I think it's not that hard to explain. If you compare a chaîne du bonheur, Swiss solidarity with a government that has a delay to spend the money, we are very lucky. We don't have a delay. And so we're going to work in Ukraine with this money as long as we have it. And we cannot tell for now exactly how much time this is going to take. But we will not block the money. If there are good programs ready to be implemented, we will fund them, but we will not push our partners to implement in a couple of months and then halas, we, we, we leave the country. What about cash grants then? Because they are being used really quite extensively in Ukraine. Is that because it's the best way or is it because it's quick and easy and there's a lot of money available? Susanna? I think it's both, unfortunately, because essentially a lot of NGOs can claim that they have activities and they record beneficiaries, but they don't have to be necessarily present on the ground because this is something you can do very much remotely. As to whether it's the best kind of uh, modality for response, I think this really depends on the region where you're responding. If you go closer to the front line where there are literally no functional markets and people, even if they have the cash, the nearest market is 15, 20 kilometers away, they're not going to spend it. They're better in kind, definitely. If you look at some bigger agglomerations, then Cash is certainly a good option. It gives people the freedom to choose what they want to spend it on. So I would say this is very much dependent on the context. Damon, Andrea? No, I just agree with Susanna. I mean, there are different ways of uh, spending cash. So what we did in, in at the very beginning was um, handing out vouchers because this was what our partner was confident with, vouchers for a supermarket, which is working quite nicely in the city, but it, it's not really appropriate for the rural situation. So we, we had to find different solutions to meet all needs of different partners in the city, but also in, in the village. And as you said, it's not the only solution. We have to carefully assess if this is the best way, or we can also think of having a mix, you know, combined cash with actually access to services or different approaches. Yeah, maybe I can complement on that. Cash works very well in in, in many areas of, of Ukraine. A difference that I would make between cash and services, cash is an assistance that is on the individual level and where it what matters the most is the identification of the right beneficiaries. And if you miss that, then you miss the point. So it's very risky in the same time. But humanitarian aid is not only about assisting individuals, it's also about collective services. And we have have been pushing you a little bit sometimes, our partners, to say just don't forget about the collective services. I'm thinking in, in priority about health services in areas affected by the conflict. They have been disrupted and this is where you can really make a big difference. Not every NGO has the medical capacity, but then there is also, the, there can be the question of education, the question of, of winterization now that can be addressed in an individual uh, approach or collective. We really would like to have a mix because also what you give to families, it will be very hard to measure the impact afterwards. And I think the Ukrainian population is also expecting some services that are more collective or general. Susanna, mm. you want to come in? Maybe, there? maybe if I can just one last comment on um, 
on cash, I think we need to also realize that there is a cap on the maximum amount of cash assistance that can go to individual. And quite recently, the cash working group in Ukraine was discussing whether the amount is still relevant because of the devaluation of Grivna and the increasing prices. But there we actually faced um, also state intervention where they wanted to keep it at the same level. So essentially, the effectiveness of cash assistance is also decreasing because it's regulated from multiple sites. So while it might sound great on the outside that, yes, we're giving cash, you can buy whatever you want from it. It's the freedom for beneficiaries. Then you have to look at the reality that there's a lot of other variables and uh, external factors that you cannot influence. And then the actual impact of the cash is limited. With the people of Ukraine so desperate for humanitarian and supplies, we are launching a new series that's focused on how to help. mission now setting up a warehouse to distribute mountains of donations. So we're learning that cash can be a quick and effective way of offering help in a conflict zone. But it's not always the solution. It's not the only solution. And there are risks. Does the money go to the most in need? Not always. Is it spent the way it was intended to be spent? Before the war, Ukraine was ranked 122 of 180 countries in a global corruption ranking, with the least corrupt up at the top and the most corrupt down at the bottom. And that didn't all change when the war began. But as aid agencies are finding, faced with a brutal, illegal attack on their country, Ukrainians expect unquestioning support. And that doesn't always sit well with the traditional humanitarian principles of neutrality and impartiality. The International Committee of the Red Cross is appealing for funds to assist the people of Ukraine. And the Red Cross has asked the Russian government for permission to open an office here in Rostov-on-Don to service eastern Ukraine. We're about a 90... The International Committee of the Red Cross has been accused of being overly cooperative with Moscow and criticized for considering opening an office in Rostov-on-Don. The International Committee of the Red Cross was subjected to what it said was a massive online disinformation campaign after some Ukrainian groups falsely claimed it was transferring civilians to Russia. Damon Ellsworth told us about his experiences and his thoughts on trying to bring aid to civilians behind what's called the contact line. That means civilians in Russian-held areas. Uh, Local authorities. They've changed their title for starters, and this was a real head-scratcher for us. Because we're a neutral organisation, we cannot sign memorandums of understanding with military organisations. It's clear. We all agree with this. But now they're all called regional military administrations. So any MOU we want to sign, whether we want to do some work in a collective centre, distribution to this, that, it has to be with their, technically they're called a military. And we've given it some people, we just remove the military and they seem okay to sign it because they're signing thousand things a day. Other people are like, no, 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 can't sign this. Uh, it has to be regional military association. Oh, well, if we're signing it with a regional military association, I've got to send it to my boss and his boss's boss. And, you know, everyone's got to talk about it. Anyway, so this is actually making just the practicality in the administration of working with a country under martial military authority, uh, just quite difficult. In terms of working behind the contact line, partnership is going to be the way forward. So we start talking about it now. Maybe things will start happening in the future. It's not really a a conversation we're ready to have. We put it to our middle management, our Ukrainian middle management. We said, how do you feel about us starting to program behind the contact line? And they said, we'd just walk out. 
So they see it as a contravention of our alignment with the Ukrainian needs. And I think this amplifies the position that we're in right now is that right now acceptance by the local authorities is good because sanctions, eighth round of sanctions comes from the EU. The US announces another $1.6 billion of aid to Ukraine. That will change. And um, I think we need to be as neutral as possible for when it does, because we are not government organizations and we are still educating our staff, our partners, the, certainly the volunteer organizations. And there's got to be that differentiation, that line. Andrea, can I ask you, because of course your, your, your sister organization, the International Committee of the Red Cross earlier this year, actually went public at saying we've got to stress we are impartial. We do not take sides in a conflict. So, so how have you found this? Yeah, I think this was um, not so easy for our partners in, in Ukraine. One of our team leaders had then to give a press conference and explain to the public what, what is, is it about the seven principles of the Red Cross. And I think we were able to, to slow down a bit the emotions, but um, of course there is still a lot to do in awareness raising, why we are working like this and why we are neutral and this is something very natural for us, and um, but it's it's something which is maybe not if if you face really um, difficult situations, it's sometimes not easy to understand these principles and what they mean. In fact, Susanna. I think um, in terms of Ukraine, we certainly still want to maintain the neutrality and impartiality principles that are the cornerstone of uh, humanitarian assistance. We just have to be very aware of how we sort of uh, even present them to the locals, aware of all our statements that are going viral, because you've mentioned, yes, Red Cross made a statement, but it had a very negative backlash on the activities in Ukraine, even though the statement was very much correct, it had repercussions. So we need to find um, essentially some some sort of a middle ground it needs to be a joint work for the local actors, governments and other NGOs to understand that we still need to operate on the principles of neutrality and impartiality and we very much want to still uh, pioneer them but at the same time uh, we cannot put our stuff in danger so when you ask about operation in the non-government controlled territories um, we are for instance still exploring this option what we managed to do is in um, in the Kherson region we have uh, still a partner organization because we were active in Kherson before our staff evacuated when the situation, the security situation really deteriorated. So we still managed to keep ties with that organization and uh, we managed to provide some assistance until the access to the banking services was essentially cut and we couldn't further support them. But we are definitely looking into ways, but this will take a lot of negotiations. And we see in Ukraine that humanitarian assistance is really being politicized by the media and also by local organizations. Because there's been, um, not sure if you've noticed, but end of August, uh, there's been this um, open letter to donors and international organizations compiled by uh, local initiatives. They're making quite a clear statement that the assistance in Ukraine, according to them, should be provided based on solidarity and not neutrality, um, which on its own is a very, very controversial statement. But we have to be simply prepared to face m more statements like this and a lot more pressure. How worried are you, Tasha, the Shenda Bonner, about this idea of solidarity rather than 
impartiality and the politicization of aid. I mean, politicization of aid is not a new phrase. We've heard it in other contexts. But here, sometimes what I read from the Geneva perspective, it seems particularly stark and possibly worryingly precedent-setting. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it's been the case in Ukraine since 2014. It's been politicized from the very beginning. But also what has changed now with the, with the new conflict is that the, the front line used to be uh, a passage line. Uh, 50,000 people a day were crossing uh, until February to get the pensions uh, on the other side, etc., which made things and concepts such as neutrality a bit more of a reality you were not necessarily suspicious if you were crossing the line because so many people were doing so and organizations such as the ICRC but also others were really working with this neutrality. This has really changed by the fact that the front line is not a crossing line anymore. It has no crossing points and you are either on one side or the other. We also know that the Russian government has been doing humanitarian convoys already since 2014 and this has always been a massive communication tool so um, how is it going to be if the conflict gets into a more uh, kind of frozen phase and again they can be crossing? Will that be acceptable for any of the sides? I don't know. And also I think with all these volunteering organizations, these uh, spontaneous initiatives led by local Ukrainians, maybe we have to accept that different tribes of humanitarian organizations are kind of uh, of operating. And for many of those, uh, neutrality is not a concept that they are even aiming at. It's, it's just uh, out of question. Maybe just trying to differentiate uh, ourselves uh, from this. So I think it's it's forcing us to really uh, reassess our position and making things clear. But I'm sure that the scandals such as what happened with the ICRC, uh, this is going to happen again. No, no one knows who's next. As the war in Ukraine has shifted east, so too have the efforts to aid millions of civilians still stuck between warring armies with nowhere to hide. And the Red Cross says it is bringing two trucks of humanitarian aid to the besieged city where it's estimated 160,000 people are still trapped. So I think we're learning. Successful humanitarian aid is a lot more complex and a lot more challenging than many of us might imagine. It was a real privilege to talk to Andrea, Damon, Susanna and Tasha and to get their frank and knowledgeable perspectives on what it means to try to bring traditional, neutral, impartial humanitarian aid to Ukraine. The conflict, sadly, does not show any signs of ending. So to close, I asked them to tell us what their plans were for winter and whether they saw any positive lessons for humanitarians that they can take from these last months in Ukraine. In terms of um, winterization, I'm still very much involved with my colleagues from uh, from the shelter uh, part in Ukraine, so we are supporting uh, the local um, IDPs, but also the local population in preparing for winter time, increasing amounts in, in cash, obviously, also to, to increase cash amounts. But then also in working in collective centers, which have sometimes windows that are broken. The heating system is not working properly, but their innovative solution for, for winterization, mobile heating units, which we can move to different uh, locations. So I think we are very much uh, working on this. But of course, we have also to have in mind that this might also take time 
it is good that we have started already in summertime when we had the forum on, on winterization to, me, to meet uh, among the NGOs and, and think about what we can do for the winter time. But I think, uh, at least from, from, from our perspective, it, it, it is always worth to, to take time and, and also to, to take the, the local partner with us, that there is really the ownership, that they feel that this, this is an owned project, this is not something uh, that is driven by international partners because we have to think about uh, sustainability once we leave the country. This is something that we have beside our projects in health, in, in home-based care, in shelter, in cash, which is also very much on, on a high agenda to building up capacities of our local partners and to prepare for to learn from the operation what did work well, where are gaps, where can we improve the capacities for the future. Okay, thank you. Damon, same question to you. Winter. So specifically what we are doing, a lot of um, light and medium repairs of houses, uh, specifically prioritizing the vulnerable in rural areas that have been displaced. And also some of the suburbs that were hit very badly, like Butcher and Erpin in Kiev. A lot of uh, cash, MPCA. Um, we are really scaling up our MHPSS, mental health and psychosocial support programming. Uh, protection continues to be a big, big, big need, particularly the further out the centres. The schools, dormitories, collective centres that were used initially for people in transit to Europe are uh, now being emptied, readied for these populations coming. So making sure that they have kind of particularly the fridges, the microwaves, the stoves, the bedding kits that they need um, to support that. But also recognising that a lot of people have now been removed from the cities to make these spaces available into the rural areas where there's no support or very, very, very limited humanitarian support. So trying to get out of the cities ourselves and get our teams out um, has been a big part of our winter preparation. Um, key positive to take away from it. A lot of my team, they've been saying like that they would have loved to have come to Europe years ago to experience speaking foreign languages, to experience Western business and all this type of thing. I think, like it or not, Ukraine is going to be really involved in Europe European affairs, in, in European integration, in activities, in business for a long time going into the future, which is wonderful. And I think uh, Ukrainian people are just, are just wonderful. So I think the positive is that this is going to integrate uh, more together Europe, which, you know, regardless of your political views, I'm, I'm pro, pro that, <laughs> despite my accent. <laughs> uh, so that's a positive to be brought out of this is that, you know, Ukraine is going to be far more, um, you know, integrated with, Euro with, with Europe. And that's a milestone in our history as a generation. Thank you very much, Susanna. Basically, what we, uh, what Hex wants to do for winter at this point is we are along the contact area. We really want to be efficient and fast because there's quite a lot of newly liberated uh, territories. And we are not entirely sure how long they will unfortunately stay still liberated because it's very fluid. There are certain advances back and forth along the contact line. It's quite clear that October, November will be very intense in terms of the uh, military push on both sides to sort of stabilize the front line before the winter. So when we did very recently assessments in uh, Balaklia, which is about 25 kilometers from Izum, the best solution that we will try to um, at this point replicate in as many places as possible is to really seal all the windows, doors, at least to the houses that still somewhat have the basic construction because I have to say that the level of damage that I've seen in the newly liberated areas is unprecedented and a lot of people 
don't even have a house to stay in, yet they refuse to leave because they have nowhere to go and it's been their home forever and they just simply don't want to go to a collective center or don't even have the means to. Um, so we're looking really at fast and efficient um, approaches to winterization that we can do on a larger scale in the priority areas, which for us is alongside the contact line, and then also parts of Kharkiv that have been quite badly affected during the offensive. Basically, just a very simple solution, wooden plate, plastic, insulation, um, insulation mousse, plastic, wooden plate, which creates at least enough insulation from the outside. So this is what we will try to do, um, along with some uh, warm blankets, warm clothes. I'll be short because we're really uh, running out of time. Um, maybe uh, on winter, um, uh, in 2014, it was really the, 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 the height of popularity of this series, Game of Thrones, and expatriates love repeating this sentence, winter is coming. And this has kept on for years and years and years. Um, Ukrainians know their, their winter. They, they are used to it. And I think for winterization, it is absolutely crucial that Ukrainians are involved in designing these programs. So we really have to look into collective solutions in shelters and in places affected by by, uh, by hostilities. And maybe about the positive uh, lessons learned, I think, um, I mean, the, the situation in Ukraine is dramatic, has been dramatic since, since February, but it's also exceptional in terms of the capacities that we have, of the funding that is available, of the willingness and attention that is there, the number of humanitarian actors that are present, and uh, this also means high expectations, and I think this is a great opportunity for the whole sector to really implement the concepts that have been in discussion for years and years, and here I'm talking about localization, participation of, uh, of affected populations, accountability. So this is really our expectation as well. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Swiss Solidarity for organising such a thought-provoking discussion, to Andrea, Damon, Susanna and Tasha for their input, and of course to you for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. Join us again on Inside Geneva. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And, of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.